quick you're about to hear part two to this episode of climate mayhem if you haven't already go listen to part one to get the full story well and you seems like you have to find these folks who have an inordinate amount of belief in their tech their idea their solution is actually going to make this big difference because a lot of times if it is just totally new right like it's just like and we don't know who's going to pay for it or buy it or or do it on the other side i'm going to capture this carbon and i'm going to stick it in a rock and you know what what am i going to do with these rocks i know i'm wildly oversimplifying but you know it's that kind of idea and it's just like man these founders they have to believe in this thing how do you guys as the investors go on that journey with them are you guys helping them stay in this belief are you that cultural element are you breaking barriers for them how do you guys think about some of those things when you think about this long complex product development cycles yeah i mean one thing that we like to do i guess going back to our secret sauce a little bit is to help solve for that question mark around who buys the rock or <laughs> forget yeah, exactly yeah. who phrased it but I think that is a key advantage is if we can introduce that company to, you know, Stacy at Shopify and say, okay, we'll get an insight ahead of time into who the customer could be and what they're looking for and what specific KPIs you need to hit or what you need to achieve in order to ensure that you have a customer on the other side of your product development. I think that is a really great benefit to the founders because at least you have something solved for. And now that doesn't solve for mm -hmm. everything because a million things go wrong in between that period yeah. and after that period. But I do think there's a lot more emphasis traditionally within climate tech specifically on underwriting technical advantages within a company and less on commercial strategy. And I do think that's becoming increasingly important because again, to your point, it's it's a very long time horizon. And you really do want to know that there are somebody's gonna pay for what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On the other side. Yeah, there's actually a, a well, and it sounds like you guys, because of your network, your partners, and your knowledge in the space, you you're able to build out that customer development path for them or help them with that, whether it's introductions or cultural drivers, et cetera. Um, that, that's super interesting. You know, another thing that we, Jacob and I have learned, or at least myself in this like journey of talking with um, founders, operators, et cetera, in the, in the climate tech, clean tech space is this concept of like climate adaptation, which is a lot of what we're talking to, making changes to help the future of climate change to either stem it, stop it, you know, whatever. But then there's these other initiatives of climate mitigation right now. And it's kind of where we started the conversation, you know, today, which is how has climate change affected you in this world? As an investor, as a company, do you guys think of climate mitigation versus climate adaptation investments? And, and if so, you know, what would you divert? Do you think about diversifying? Like, what, what, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I don't want to scare anybody as a collective. At, as the human race, we've already failed, right? We've already failed to some extent. Climate change, although it, I don't have as many personal experiences with 
catastrophic natural disasters, it is happening already. It's happening all over the world, including in the U.S. We're nowhere near our targets for emissions reductions. You know, the planet is on a path to global warming. I don't want to scare anybody because there's plenty to be really hopeful about here. You know, I'm not saying we we need to pack it up and, and head to Mars or anything just yet, but we haven't made enough strides at mitigation. And so we do really have to start thinking about adapting to a different world and a different ecosystem and how the human race can evolve to exist and hopefully thrive in this in this new environment that we're rapidly charging towards. So yeah, I think adaptation and mitigation go hand in hand. We need to be thinking about both. And it's not just about diversifying our portfolio, although that that is certainly part of it. And we do think about making sure that we're we're staying diversified um, in terms of the types of risks that we're taking. But it's also just acknowledging where the opportunities are and adaptation is is certainly a big part of that. And I guess I meant diversification a little differently even you know, the, the mission of Collab Fund is this idea of do good, right? You know, find companies that are doing good. Do you think about the doing good differently when, with companies that are focused on mitigation versus companies that are focused on adaptation? And we've just been able to talk to a few and it's inspiring, you know, talking to people who are, you know, thinking about this tech that's going to save us in 20, 30 years, but then it's really, it's a different kind of inspiring to talk to founders who are dealing with stuff right now, you know, in the, in the now. And you're like, man, I really want to diversify where my dollar goes because I want to help both of those types of companies. Yeah, definitely. Super well said. I think it's definitely necessary when you look at um, what the human race needs. And it's also key advantage as an investor to ensure that we're looking both at opportunities right now and the ones that will hopefully bear fruit in another decade or plus. I think the you're for profit and for good, it's this nice principle that it can you can apply all these nice angles to it, right? So I wrote down some, it's like, you know, it could be a mitigation company. It could be an adaptation company. It could be a B2C, it could be a B2B. Like when I, I'm looking at the listing of the companies recently you guys have invested in, like, oh, this one's B2B, this one's B2C, this one's B2B. And another angle is you mentioned like leaning more into the cultural movement side of things versus the like logical left brain, kind of just like the heavy on the science technical side of things. So I guess given all of that, why are you all tripling down on climate since, you know, only the past few years, five years, when you all started, you were not thinking about climate. Is that right? No, you know, we've been investing in climate and sustainability almost since the beginning, but it's been one of our pillars. It's been sort of one of our sectors that we've focused on. We've only really, what I say, tripled down on climate in the last 18 to 24 months. Um, We launched programmatic fund called Shared Future, which invests 100K into 100 companies in climate per year. We launched a fund called Collab SOS, which is a slightly later stage, more series A and B, $225 million climate-focused, climate-only fund. So we've created these dedicated vehicles now that are strictly focused on climate, but it has been a pillar of our investment strategy from the beginning. And again, back to when I first joined in 2016, that was largely due to some of the thought pieces and research that Craig had, had put out around changing cultural tailwinds and changes in consumer behavior that were creating opportunity. But the reason why in the last 
you know, 18 to 24 months, we've really kind of put our stake in the ground and said, we, we want to stay super focused on this area is a lot has changed, right? I mean, there is a lot more stakeholder buy-in. I wouldn't say we have unanimous agreement across all stakeholders, particularly in the U.S., but you are seeing a lot more engagement from regulators and consumers, and there is a lot more motivation for change. It, it, it feels like a totally different environment than you know, climate tech or clean tech 1.0, and that creates a lot of opportunity. I think that's that's part of what we're doing here, obviously. It's an opportunity to create positive impact and and to to invest in uh, really great companies that are going to grow on to be super successful. I would say the other thing that's that's slightly different and and catalyzed us to really stay focused on climate is as an investor, you kind of want to go where the talent is going, right? You want to be investing in the smartest people. And when you look at you know where are the smartest kids of this generation, when they graduate, where are they going? What kind of companies are they starting? A lot of them are want to go work in climate, right? When I was graduating, a lot of them were going into going to Wall Street or going into law, any of these other sort of more traditional fields. But the smartest kids of this generation, I think, want to work in climate. And so we want to be investing in in those people. And that's partly why we just see so much opportunity here. Well said. Well said. I I yeah, am part cool. of Air Miners and I go to oh. event like once a month. And when I'm there, because I'm doing a little bit of like scouting for the podcast, you know, so I'm like, oh, I'm like, so I'm like looking at all the names. I search them. And I can usually get through like 30 or 40 names during the whole thing. I started to see this pattern through the last couple months. I'm like, oh, there's so many people at, from MIT, you know, yeah. and it was like this MIT master's program or it was like this bachelor's program. I'm just like, I, you know, there's some, and then the people that were speaking, if it was like pitching their company and trying to get people to work there, it was like, I mean, I look at their background. They came from really great places too. And I was like, you know, there is amazing talent here, like from the best schools, people with who are thinking big and are trying to do big things. You're right. I, th- I think, and I hope that continues, but I feel like only recently in the past two years that that wave has started, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's exciting to see. Yeah, that's that's what we need. That is brilliant. That's what mind. we need, right? Yeah. So who is paying for these I think calling it a climate product or service is too too narrow, but who who's paying for these products and services that you all are uh, funding? And what have you learned about their appetite for it? Like, is ap- appetite growing in the past 18 to 24 months? And that's also another reason why you're doubling down into it? Yeah. I mean, we look at the B2C and individual consumers. We have learned that consumers are starting to make some of their purchasing decisions based on climate. I mean, they they started years ago and it's been slowly increasing over time. And there's been a pretty big inflection point over the last couple of years. I think a lot of the discourse and news around the pandemic and quarantine kind of accelerated some of that shift in behavior. But to be totally blunt, they don't pay much for it. There's not a much of a premium for climate. There, if you if you put two products in front of a consumer and they cost the same and are basically the same, except one is better for the environment, consumers will go towards the better, the one that's better for the environment, but they won't really pay too much of a premium for it. Yeah. Okay. And that's partly why I think the villain test is so important. It's because we want to be able to offer a value proposition to consumers that don't make them sacrifice that don't force them to pay a higher price or make any sacrifices for the product that is better for the environment. 
And then on the B2B side, you know, there are actually a lot more corporates that are now paying for climate solutions. And that's partly because they're, you know, getting pressure from both consumers and regulators. They're sort of being forced into this position where they have to pay for climate solutions. And there's a pretty wide range in terms of how much corporates are willing to pay, which types of corporates are willing to do what, how much they're willing to be on the front lines or on the frontier of more cutting edge technologies or services with the climate. But overall, we find that they're hungry, right? They're they're looking for reliable ways to offset their emissions or improve their supply chains. And we have direct insight into some of that via our advisory board and via those CSOs that I mentioned. But I do think the villain test is really important here too. Even though corporates are willing to pay up for climate solutions, there are a lot of value propositions that climate companies can offer to corporates that make it a no-brainer for them to switch to, to more climate-positive solutions, right? There are materials that add real value to their supply chains that you know go beyond, uh, beyond climate. For example, I think a lot of companies are really worried right now about supply chain reliability and geopolitical tensions and as we're rethinking new supply chains for these companies, creating materials or processes or supply chain services that are both better for the environment, but again, better for for companies that they can underwrite less risk in their supply chains, or they have more control over, there's less volatility. Those are all things that would be good for a company regardless of the impact on climate. And so again, I think the villain test applies to both kind of B2B and B2C customers. Super interesting. We had this idea the other day when we were chatting, we've gotten a good amount of our audiences is startups or got people in startups or people who want to be startups. And because you're one of the first VCs in the climate tech space that we've been able to talk to, we really wanted to see, you know, whatever you can tell us, obviously you don't, you don't have to go into any details, but what's maybe a recent pitch or a recent idea that really got you excited or really worked for you? Maybe it was the way it was done, not just what they were talking about. Um, anything that you could kind of give to our audience who might be wanting to start a company on like, what's a pitch that worked for you recently and why? Well, actually, actually, a founder recently told me to, this is going to sound super corny, and it was kind of corny, but he told me to close my eyes and then painted a picture for me, like a very detailed picture of the world 10 years from now and how his company as a materials business fit into that world, like what the world would look like if their company was successful. And again, it's very corny, but it actually, I found it very effective because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, we're looking at companies that are going to be operating, assuming they're successful in a completely new world, just a completely new normal for us. And so you do have to reorient your thinking, not just to, extrapolating the success of this one individual company, but envisioning a whole new world where that company would be successful and how it fits in. So I thought that was, I thought that was interesting and it it did work pretty well on me actually, because I, I, I do find that being able to spark your imagination or being able to really think beyond just building out a financial model and proving that there are, you know, numbers that can tie out in a spreadsheet is really important because it it proves that 
a founder or a team, they're able to think about, again, sort of the, the cultural landscape and, and the world beyond just their one individual company. I dig that because I've always said like the great startup founders, in my opinion, always were able to kind of see this new future, right? Predict the future. And to your point, not just a spreadsheet of like what will sell or what is someone, you know, what's the next you know best widget someone's looking for. It's that that cultural shift. Those are the ones that make that real big innovation. And they're able to see a story. They're able to see a world different than what is today. That's pretty awesome. It seems like it could also kind of fail, though, like if they couldn't tell a good story, like close your eyes and then they kind of say something lame, like that could be a big miss. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you've got to be pretty confident to be able to do that. Unfortunately, yeah. he was confident. And, and nice, nice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So on that, you know, on that same vein, startup founder wanting to wanting to start to embark on this journey has an idea, maybe can see this future. And they start building this story. You know, I think there's a lot of different theories around a financial strategy, right, for startups. But I learned, I learned from some great founders that you have to have a strategy, right? Like when you're building a company, like everything else, like how am I going to build this thing? How, who am I going to hire? What's the tech we got to design? What's the product? How do we manage the project? You got to have a similar funding strategy of like, when am I going to go look for money? How much am I, you know, how am I going to think about the amount of money that I... Do you have any tips or tricks as a startup wannabes, you know, building this out to think about a good funding strategy for climate tech, specifically for maybe these longer, more complex product cycles um, that you could you could give to potential people in this space? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because, of course, every company is going to be a little bit different and particularly the companies that require a lot more CapEx, like a lot more um capital expenditures are going to have a very different journey than, for instance, a software business in terms of their funding. Obviously, the first place to start is grants and subsidies, just because there is a lot more non-dilutive funding accessible to climate companies, particularly after the IRA. I think making sure that you have a good grasp on what your options are there is, is a good place to start because you know I'm a venture capitalist and I, I think venture is a very important part of the ecosystem, but it's kind of the last place you want to go if you can if you can build a business without needing to take investment from from venture then or you can minimize the amount of investment you take from venture then then you should try to do that so i would start there and then as you start to map out the first few rounds of capital that you want to raise assuming you do want to raise from vcs working backwards from your kpis so from what are the specific milestones that you need to hit at each of those stages in order to raise your funding, whether it be, you know, building out a pilot facility or landing your first customer or generating your first dollar of revenue or securing X number of patents or whatever. There are so many different types of milestones, but really mapping out this is the milestone I want to hit at the series B. And then this is the milestone I want to hit at the series A. This is what I want to hit at the the seed series. And then working backwards in terms of, okay, how much cash do I need to hit those? (laughs) With with a 20% buffer, because you will definitely underestimate how much things cost. I think that's the way to do it because what you really want is to have a good grasp on, okay, what are investors at each of these stages looking for? And so for example, most series B investors are going to want to seek 
commercial traction. They'll want to see, okay, you have customer, you're generating revenue. There's no product or technical risk anymore. I mean, that is more at the seed stage. And so what is seed stage investors looking for? They want to know that there's some confidence that the product is working, that there's might still be technical risk, but you've proven out maybe on a you know, benchtop model that the product, that your technology is actually working. So in any case, that, that's how I would do it. It's just really through and not just for the upcoming amount of capital that you're raising, but pretty far out because that will determine like how you space out the fundraising and how much capital you need. I love it. That's a great mapped out way to think about a funding strategy. And I do think, you know, just having sat next to a bunch of entrepreneurs and and been in part of these, it's sometimes the last thing entrepreneurs think of. And I think it's powerful to think of that early. And, and that's a great model. I, I like that a lot. Quickly on the industry itself, you know, I just read this article a few days ago, maybe a week ago now in Crunchbase that was talking about venture investing in general of like, it's the lowest, I think February was the lowest month we've had in B and C rounds investing maybe ever, if I remember right, or second time, second lowest ever, something like that. What I couldn't find is, is that the same in this climate tech investing? Like climate tech seems to be booming while the rest of the tech industry, especially is is having all kinds of challenges right now and, and being affected by lots of different things. What is the market like on these on these different rounds in the climate tech space right now? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Similar to the rest of the market, the B and C stages are are pretty thin. You know, there are a ton they of okay. funds that are getting interested in climate right now. So there's a lot of seed capital that's available to climate founders. And obviously there are some massive billion dollar plus funds that are active at the later stages. But the BC stages is certainly one of the most treacherous of the valleys of death for climate companies. It's it's one of the areas that's hardest to get funding. And part of that is, you know, what I alluded to before, which is traditionally series B investors are going to be looking for commercial validation. They're going to be looking for real revenue and revenue growth. Some product market fit, right? Like that product market fit. Yeah, like product market fit has already kind of been established and they can really believe that growth is is happening. But that's tough for a lot of climate tech businesses. A lot of the times they, they might not even have revenue by that stage. And so there's a bit of a mismatch in expectations and and capital available. But you know, that's where we play. You kind of you want to zig with nice. zagging. It it creates opportunity for those of us who do feel like we can underwrite some of that risk because we bring a lot of strategic value along with our investment. And and we don't have to worry as much about the commercial risk because we we um try to solve for that with our partnerships a bit. But yeah, it's it's certainly a tough stage of growth for a lot of climate t- companies is around B and C. I love that you just said that because the first thing it made me think of, because I like to, <laughs> I like to think critically about venture. I've been in startups enough that it's like I want to. To me, that feels like a miss in investors. Like we need, we need investors with a little different sophistication level to be able to talk with these type of companies that are in these similar rounds. To your point, 
They may not have product market fit. The complexity of their product takes longer, or it may just be a brand new technology that needs a little bit longer legs to to prove itself out. Sounds to me like, one, you guys have the risk appetite and understand this long-term vision a bit more, in my mind, from everything I've heard from you guys. And And then you said, but you've also solved it by having this strategic value prop that allows you to have partners and players in the field that will allow these startups to get past this with your investment. I love that. I think that's the sophistication we're looking for in, in this uh, investment space. That's cool. Thank you. We certainly yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was the, it was the answer I was looking for. I didn't know that's the one you were going to give. It was great though. I did. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask anyone that comes on the show is, is, in your mind, from what, everything you've seen, and you get to see a pretty cool perspective on the whole market and all the different things that are happening, in your mind, what do you think is the next big step change in climate action or the sustainability space that we either need and is coming or that you can see kind of coming down the road? Are you looking for specific sectors or just kind of big? I mean, I think we're at the precipice, as we've talked about, where culture and climate are colliding, right? Like climate is becoming a part of culture. It's something that celebrities and influencers talk about. Big corporate global brands are thinking about climate. You know, it's on the front page of the newspaper and probably something that my aunt in New Jersey is talking to her friends about over dinner. So it, I think that started. I don't know that we're all the way there yet. And that's probably the next biggest seismic shift is when really climate becomes, you know, the topic of conversation at dinner parties and is is top of mind for everybody on a sort of a cultural platform. Um, I think that's where you really start seeing pretty, pretty seismic shifts in behavior and regulation and, and all that. And when you say that, do you mean kind of the acceptance that it's happening? Because I would argue there's been a lot of dinnertime conversation about people coming after my gas stove, right? Over the <laughs> last few months, right? Like, and, and there's always the new thing that someone's, that the government's coming after, the climate, the environmentalists are coming after. I'm assuming you mean that where we've gotten past some of this controversial, challenging conversations, and there's a little bit more of a understanding of what's really going on. Exactly. A more unified perspective on the catastrophic implications that are, are coming up fast. Fair. I do think I do think it's more part of our conversation than ever. <laughs> For all these, maybe all the, I don't know if it's wrong reasons. I guess LPR is good PR, right? But <laughs> we're talking about it, right? But it's not all, we're not all in agreement for sure. Definitely. And it's hard to imagine this world. You said, Sophie, it's uh, like you do got to kind of close your eyes and have someone paint the picture for you. I actually think that's that's why those, you know, like that's why those like climate sci-fi books and like those recent climate movies are just so great because you're like, whoa, this is real shit, right? Like this could get really bad. So we're going to... Real gonna, quick, Jacob, before yeah. before you do what you're about to do, I saw on your Twitter, I think there's a science fiction book club you just joined back up. Sophie, do you do the cli-fi as well? Are you guys doing... Is it or all is it just sci-fi? You know, that's a good question. It is just sci-fi. But um, now that you say that, I'm going to push. I'm going to push for some cli-sci, cli-sci specifically. Gosh, nice. Because we, we had some of the founders that we've talked to are like heavy into some of this cli-fi, you know, fiction, it. and we we had some good conversation. I learned a lot. I don't know anything about it, but it was great. He hasn't started yet. 
<laughs> he needs to start. He needs to start. We'll, we'll all do it together. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. I'll join. All, all right, right, Jacob. I we're going to do a, we're going to, I think it's time. Sophie, we're going to do something okay. called Rapid Mayhem questions. So, full disclaimer, I'm going to try to stump you. It, <laughs> it's, it'll be fun and it's going to educate us all a little bit more, uh, definitely the listeners. So, true or false questions, we're going to ask four of them. Are you ready? I guess so. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Here we go. First, true or false? In 2022, Climate Tech VC funding totaled $50 billion, damn, up 89% from 2021. True or false? I'm going to say false because I think it's more, actually. You're right. It is nice. more so. So, oh, so okay. you are right. It that. was $70.1 billion. So that's, so that's Not great. stumper on that first one. No, beginning. no. Like <laughs> All right. So in that, yeah. same, in that same vein. 70.1 so billion. 70.1 billion. It's a lot of cheddar. All right. Mm-hmm. Now. Double clicking into that, the sectors that had the most funding were energy storage and mobility. And for the audience, mobility is, you know, think of Lime scooters or bicycles. And then biosphere was the least, which I actually don't, can't even imagine what that would be. True or false? I don't know anything about biosphere, but I think the former is definitely true. Energy um, storage and, and transportation mobility would definitely be the most. So true, true. You're right. All right. All right. <laughs> That's some good momentum here. All right. True or false? Carbon related startups got 4.2 billion from VCs globally last year across 204 deals. That's so carbon. So it could be like carbon accounting. Um, it could be like carbon marketplace where they connect to projects. I'm going to say false again because I think it's more than 4 billion. Hmm. This is a gated piece of content by Business Insider, so I can only read the headline. It was true, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Four billion, I mean, four billion is still quite a lot. So. That's a lot. That's still a lot. lot. Still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last one. True or false? Decarbonization and the same carbon-related question has an estimated, supposedly, two trillion dollars in EBITDA up for grabs. It says Y Combinator, and they reference this article by um, you know, the United Nations. I don't know the exact number, but just based solely on how you asked the question, I'm going to say false. Oh, all right. <laughs> I, I need to. I need to work on my it. my yeah my your delivery. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I get it. Gotcha. Yeah, you got it. You got oh, it. It's, it said it was three to ten trillion dollars. Big range. That's that's huge. Wow, but that's a huge range. I'll share that article in the the show notes. It's pretty interesting. There is a lot of opportunity here over the next you know 25, 30 years. A lot to gain, right? Absolutely massive. Brilliant. Love it. Yeah. Yes. Ooh, 75%, right? Okay, I passed. <laughs> yeah, you did great. You did great. You passed. All right. Grab Mayhem questions have closed. Uh, we we're done there. Sophie, where can we find you? And or where can we find Collab Fund? Yeah, well, for Collab Fund, I highly, highly recommend checking out our website and our blog, which are excellent, collabfund.com. And for me specifically, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, actually, you know. I don't know if you guys know this, but LinkedIn is the new social platform to be on. Everyone's on LinkedIn. So. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to LinkedIn. I've been trying I, to wait off of it. very recently that this is where all the cool kids are. And so I will be spending more time there. Please come and say nice. hi. I can start nice. getting my feet wet. Yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay, we'll put the links in the show notes as well. So uh, lastly, climate change, it's, it's really big. As we've been talking about in this conversation. People often feel helpless in helping what is the equivalent 
of what a listener could do. It could be someone who's working in a tech company or maybe it's a busy soccer mom. What would you say? So easy. Go and vote. That is definitely the biggest nice. impact we have. I'm not one of those people who's going to tell you you can't travel or you can't shop at the store that you like. Go and vote because that's how we make the biggest change. Go and vote how? Go and vote in midterms. <laughs> go and vote for love it. Go and vote for politicians who believe climate change is real and who are going to actually create systemic change um, from the top down. I think there's way too much emphasis on asking busy soccer moms to completely upend their lives and make all these really big sacrifices to their lives. And I think ultimately that's not where the most change is going to happen. It's going to come from the top. And so we need yeah. to pressure, pressure regulators to actually um, catalyze some of that change. Yeah. I think the IRA was a great example that it mobilized a lot of people, a lot of people writing letters, making phone calls, and it was, it seemed like it was not going to happen. And then, and then it did, it really was because people, you know, picked up the phone or sent an email, right? Definitely. Well, Sophie, it was awesome getting to talk to you, get to know you, your philosophy, any other calls to action for the audience, uh, for you, um, that you're working on or want people to know about? Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're starting a company or you're working in a company in climate, we definitely want to hear from you. So Love yeah, it. reach out. Come check out our blog. Come check out our website. There are a lot of resources for new emerging climate tech companies. And yeah, we want to see you all succeed. So we're here to help. And do you have a contact well, form on your website? Like if they did want to reach out? We have a, a contact form for companies that like new and emerging companies for shared future, the programmatic fund that invests 100k into 100 companies so definitely go well that's what i was going to say i think i think the thing is while it was a pillar from the time you started one of the things that i learned about collab fund is they're just you know always super innovative always trying to be looking forward and you guys now that pillar has grown into a huge platform for climate tech companies for early stage late stage all, all different types of of companies and so I think anyone would be lucky to uh, to chat with you guys. And I think it's uh, you guys have built out some really cool things. I just I love the idea of the programmatic, you know, investing of that of that share fund that you guys you keep mentioning. Um, I think that's a, a cool way to help companies, you know, build some equity in, in the way that companies get looked at. Um, so that, that's I think there's a lot of opportunity. So I would highly recommend any founder startup thinking about it, thinking about raising money, reach out to these guys. Uh, it's been a lot of fun learning a lot about you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's been so fun chatting with you guys too. I really appreciate you having me on. It was wonderful. Thanks so much, Sophie. All right. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Ciao. Boom. How was that? Well, there's more. So keep listening. We speak with climate tech leaders and change makers in EV, reforestation, solar energy, flood mapping, and a whole lot more. Also, you can give feedback or check out show notes at our website, climatemayhem.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Oh, don't forget, if you found this valuable or interesting at all, please hit subscribe. That way we know you're loving it. So just go to Spotify or whatever podcast app you're on. Hit that subscribe button at the top. Production was done by Daniel Steenkamp with cover art by Harrison Glenn. This is Jake Kubica with my legendary colleague, Ty Wolf motherfucking Jones. Peace out, Climate Mayhem. Out. Out.